Hello there and welcome to Downtown the Podcast, episode 17. Coming to you from Bangor, Maine, the Zone Radio Studios, Rich Kimball with Carrie Haskell. We broadcast the Downtown Show live every day from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on WZON, WKIT HD3, streaming audio at downtownwithrichkimball.com, and you can download the WZON app as well. Our podcast is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength, and by Knight's Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine. This week on the podcast, a couple of interesting conversations, including music legend Don McLean, and we get things rolling with David Roth of Deadspin, one of the most talented writers out there and one of our favorite guests on the program. Always a wide-ranging discussion when David Roth joins us. Let's give a listen. Gosh, David, what, what's wrong with our country? What's wrong with America when a reality show president can't even trust the reality show contestant he brings into the inner circle of the White House? I hope that you're talking about Omarosa here, because I'd really, I'd, I'd love to do some Omarosa chat. Uh, as you know, I'm a huge fan of her work. <laughs> well, uh, who and... isn't? <laughs> what, what would you say her work is? This is something I've been trying to figure out. Like, it seems like she's one of those people that just like, if she hadn't been on The Apprentice, she would have been on The Worst Cooks in America, or it would have been like just some reality show where people like abase themselves so that they can tell someone that they were on E! Yeah, or like Bravo. I, I feel like Omarosa is, is Trump's version of the time when George Costanza took the exterminator out to dinner to show his boss he had a black friend. <laughs> yes, it does. I mean, certainly that is the only excuse for him hiring her. I mean, it's like I don't. Again, like I'm not going to pretend that I am intimately familiar with her her body of work. Uh, like I definitely know who she is, um, and I think that's probably more than enough. Like, I, more than I would like. But the idea that she's just sort of there in the White House to, like, you know, remind people that, uh, like, he's not always racist to everyone is kind of a, it's a cheesy gig, and yet she screwed it up. And, uh, I, you know, I don't know, I guess I all you can do is tip your cap. Like, it's weird that it's still possible to be surprised by any of this. And yet I really do find myself every day waking up and seeing something that I never thought I'd see. Oh, yeah, what will it be today? Well, and just so we know that the right doesn't have the monopoly on absurdity, how bizarre is it that, that people are talking about Michael Avenatti with some level of seriousness as a presidential candidate? I don't, that's amazing to me. I mean, it's just, I guess this is, the way I've been trying to sort of think about this, because it does seem like we're in the middle of this, like, grifter renaissance, broadly speaking, <laughs> in the culture, where I Avenatti mean, at least has an advanced degree, which is something that I guess you got to give him uh, a little bit of the edge on Rosa <laughs> and Trump in that regard. But it just seems like everyone, and this is like, you know, from the top down, the way that Trump has used his office to enrich himself and his uh, beautiful family. And it seems like, in this case, everybody has just sort of decided that uh, all rules are suspended, and we're in this kind of, like, four-year-long version of the purge where only financial <laughs> crimes are allowed, and everyone's just out there trying to, to get an extra 15 minutes or an extra $1,500 million. And it is, uh, it's really kind of, like, harrowing to see. I don't think Avenatti, I don't have no idea what this guy's actually like. You know, he just seems like someone that wants to be on TV. And yet, like, again, you know, why do adults that, like, have interests in their lives know who all these people are? 
like we have to do it, but it is just, yeah. Any moment that I'm spending thinking about Michael Avenatti at a, you know, like eating fried food at a state fair in Iowa is a moment that I should be spending on something else. Well, you know, we're all dealing with this as a country, but, but David, I feel like you may be carrying a greater load than the rest of us because you're so good at writing about the president and, and everything around him. And yet it, it seems to bring you great pain to do that. Even when you come up with the best description of all a fearless leader, a great wet loaf of a man. Thank you. I appreciate you saying all that. It's it's tough. Um, I mean, I'm going to act like, you know, this is, I'm lucky to, to do it for a job. I'm lucky to be able to write for a job full stop. But I also feel like with this, it gets to the point, you know, where I write about him every couple of months. You know, it's not my job to write about the president or to goof on the president. It's just like at some point that all gets like kind of stuck in the gears and I have to power wash it out <laughs> or else like nothing's going to work. Like I can't do my baseball blogs unless I uh, write 1,500 words about what a dope he is every couple of months, which is probably not ideal. We're talking to David Roth of Deadspin. Well, let's talk a little sports. Let's talk some baseball. Hey, why is baseball a great game? Well, because a a, a kid can hit a walk-off grand slam with two outs in the ninth inning, and because the Mets can rise up and beat the Yankees on any given night. Yeah, I mean, that one, uh, obviously, you know, you're, you're preaching to the choir on that one. But, yeah, the uh, the Mets, I mean, at this point, the Mets are any good thing that happens to them this year feels like a bonus to me because – uh, it's just been we're achieving like this this peak willpon of just, you know and, uh, a sort of a type of bad ownership that it's like a like an eclipse or something you know like you kind of you don't want to look directly at it but you know it's remarkable and it doesn't happen that often uh, and it's having my favorite team but they did they scored eight runs in a game that Jacob Degrom started which is impressive because I think there was a month where they scored eight runs in the game that Jacob <laughs> Degrom started so yeah you never know. The, uh, if you're talking about the David Boat walk-off Grand Slam, then uh, I want to talk about that more because that's one of the coolest things that I have seen, even just as a, a decontextualized highlight. Oh yeah, that and I, I did not watch it live, but you watch the highlights uh, I, half a dozen times anyway because I thought that's the greatest kid in the backyard fantasy of all time. To the point where you know, we were saying yesterday, if you wrote that in the movie script people would say, all right, that's a bit yeah. too much to be realistic. That's a bit much. It couldn't be a double. Like, you have to <laughs> right. be a grand slam. But, yeah, it is, it, to me, I think it's been something, it's a very long period of time, I mean, more than 60 years since anyone had hit, I guess somebody on Twitter called it an ultimate grand, an ultimate walk-off, I think. Yes, yes. Which is not like a term, but you know exactly what it means. He's down to two strikes, he's down to his last strike, and hit a grand slam to win a game in a walk-off fashion, like, I feel like it could, you know, he could retire tomorrow and probably dine out on that in the greater Chicagoland area for the rest of his days. Oh, easily, yeah. Uh, let's turn to He's football. In a weird. Well, but go ahead. Oh no, no, go ahead. Finish up there. Oh, I'm just going to say that I don't need to turn this into David Boat chat because I didn't know who the guy was uh, until 72 hours ago myself, and I write about baseball. But he is another a dude that has been like for the last since they called him up, and they're probably going to have to send him back down once Chris Bryant comes back. He's been hitting like Mike Trout, which is another, you know, file it under you never know thing for baseball. But I mean, he's been fantastic. And he's like a 27 year old quad A guy. Uh, your podcast is back this week. And uh, you talk, among other things, about Urban Meyer. And, and what kind of world is it in big time college football when Urban Meyer is not the worst guy out there? Thank you, DJ oh Durkin. My gosh. 
Yeah, I can't believe I saw that uh, today. I guess the strength and conditioning coach stepped down, and that's the only pro. That's the the sacrifice that Maryland is trying to yeah. make on this. Uh, and everybody else is just going to kind of skate on a kid dying during practice and then covering it up for two weeks. I don't understand where uh, my colleague Chris Thompson wrote a, a really good, if somewhat profanely headlined uh, article that I can't recommend by name here on this broadcast <laughs> about it over the weekend. But man, what a, a I mean, beyond it being a, a terrible tragedy for Jordan McNair and his family, like, I don't, I just don't understand the priorities that allow that to happen, let alone, you know, the idea that it's one thing with Urban Meyer, people get crazy about college football and the guy wins a lot of games. Who's DJ Durkin? Like, why is this really worth it? You need it that much? Well, yeah, and to read some of the other stuff that, that went on there, you know, primarily with the strength and conditioning coach, but you know, forcing a kid who was overweight to eat candy bars until he threw up and uh, teammates lifting up players who collapsed during workouts and carrying them to the finish line and I mean, questioning people's manhood. It's like, you know, it's like the strength and conditioning coaches, the great Santini. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it really, really is. It's, just a, it's also just bizarre because I don't think it helps. Well, no. Like, I, don't, I don't believe that it doesn't toughen anybody up. It's just sadistic. I mean, it's the sort of thing, if you're trying to get these players in the best possible shape, you know, to win football games, which I guess is, you know, the broadest possible definition of what the guy's job is, You'd think that like a, a baseline there would be not causing them preventable kidney damage out hmm. of spite. That's a good place to start. Well, yes, that, that I like that a lot. And, and as I pointed out yesterday, not that it's acceptable anywhere, but man, it's Maryland. You're not, you're not even good. I know. I was thinking about that today, that joining the Big Ten has just been absolutely institutional poison for both Maryland and Rutgers. Now, I'm sure that there's some sort of financial consideration there that you know maybe we don't see, in terms of TV money or, you know, I guess the idea is that you get more out-of-state applications and those kids pay more and whatever. I mean, so obviously, once you start thinking about edu- higher education as a business, you're in some deep and kind of cruddy waters to begin with. But, man, both of those schools have really just had a miserable go of it and have made all kinds of compromises that haven't moved them at all. It kind of, uh, I'd like to think that there's a lesson to be learned there, but I, I have followed Rutgers Athletics long enough to know that. Uh, they're not going to learn. So what's something uh, positive out there, whether it's in sports, pop culture, something that can bring us a little bit of sunshine in these, well, sort of dark days? I mean, there's been, I've actually found, well, some of it is that I'm, uh, I am going to be on vacation in six days. So that's, uh, that's what I'm personally using. Not everybody gets to, to do that. Although everybody that is listening to this presumably is already in Maine, so they already know how that feels, uh, <laughs> how I will feel in six days. But I found, um, well, I mean, now that I'm kind of cut free from having to watch my baseball team because the Mets are so bad, I've enjoyed, uh, there's been a couple of players that I've been sort of seeking out and uh, trying to enjoy the experience of watching and kind of that liberated way that you can do in the NBA where you don't have you know, you can have, like, a team that you randomly like watching late at night on TNT. Right. So Jose Ramirez has been doing it for me. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I've been enjoying that. And I wrote recently about uh, Rick Ankiel, uh getting ready to make a comeback. And I think that's pretty fantastic, too, just because of how unprecedented it would be and because of the fact that he seems really very much at peace. And, you know, he was so electric during the very brief period when he was a major league pitcher. I think even though he's going to be, you know, 40 next year, 
and who knows if he ever makes it back or if he ever gets the strike zone back. But I think it would be cool to get the chance to see him, you know, do something that he was kind of cheated out of doing by the fluky cruelty of baseball. So oh, yeah. That's a nice thing to think. It was about. a great story. Now I, I know it annoys much of America, but we're we're enjoying this uh, historic Red Sox season up here. I think. You know, I mean, it's not that annoying to if you know if you live in New York and they come to town, and beat the pants off the Yankees a bunch of games in a row. Like it's you know sometimes it's just fun to uh, watch guys with bad facial hair look sad on the train. You know, <laughs> like I don't have a rooting interest there, <laughs> so it's, it's it's nice. Um, they are awfully good. And it's always cool to see a team sort of working at that level. The thing that struck me about it is that, you know, as good as, as they are, they also haven't been, you know, unusually healthy. I mean, they've had some some terrible luck with Deavers being out and stuff like that. A lot of the pitchers have been, and, you know, with Sale more recently, uh, you know, not all of their pitchers have been great. Like, it's just, like, this isn't as good as they could conceivably be, which is really something to think about. Because they're on pace, I think, right now for 113 or 114 wins. Oh, yeah, and and they're a really likable team, too. But, you know, New England being what New England is, the vast majority of people I've talked to are like, yeah, but I don't know if they can win the World Series. Yeah. Win 113 a, games, and then if, if they go out in the second round, it's like, what an awful disappointment this was. I know. that's Well, that's the, the magic of it. I mean, that's part of, like, I think why I was surprised the other day to see what their their winning pace was, because I – you know, I know they're good, you know, and I have a, enough fantasy teams that I have, like, you know, some vested interest in, like, four or five guys on the roster. But the tone of the conversation on there is, it's not, you know, fatalistic or whatever, but everybody should be just, you know, doing the Snoopy happy dance all the time. And all the stuff I see is being, like, Pomerantz is a disgrace. We've got to do something about him. And, like, I don't know how you could be watching a team that wins, like, basically, uh, you know, four out of every five games for a month and be worried about Drew Pomerantz. Like, you have to have a lot of uh, good things going in your life if that's going to be a problem for you. Puritan guilt. We can't shake it ever here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a good answer. That's David Roth here on Downtown, the podcast. When we come back, a music legend talking about uh, some of his early hits and about his brand new album as well. Don McLean joins us right after this word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Five years ago, a couple of friends got together. The plan, create balanced beers that pay respect to the rich German tradition of brewing, layered with the nuance and eccentricity of modern brewing methods. With that, Nice Brewing Company was born, G-N-E-I-S-S. Based in Limerick, Maine, right in the foothills of the White Mountains, Dustin and Tim combine a love of beer, science, and their German heritage for truly unique brews. Whether it's the Nice Weiss, the Sun and Shine, IPAs, Stout Supporters, or any of their seasonal offerings, you'll love what they've got brewing at Nice. Ask for beers from Nice at your favorite restaurant or bar, and now look for Nice in cans. Work hard, play hard, be nice.
there she was behind the counter when I saw her she took me by surprise ten years had passed since our brief encounter when I got caught with the sun in my eyes it was a total eclipse of the sun total eclipse of the sun Tom McLean has been making music for nearly 50 years now set the music world on fire in the early 70s with with his album and title track American Pie that's become one of the most iconic songs in history and there have been hits like Vincent Castles in the Air his cover of Roy Orbison's Crying and many many more we talked to him not too long ago about the release of a brand new album called Botanical Gardens that was one of the cuts from the album Total Eclipse of the Sun an interesting conversation about present and past music with Don McLean. I want to talk with you about the new album, Botanical Gardens, uh, which is absolutely wonderful. Uh, and can you tell the story of the inspiration for this album? Well, for years I've been going to, uh, well, I, first of all, I have a lot of um, garden type uh, properties, you know, that I own that are pretty large and I spend a lot of time outdoors and just thinking about stuff, but the most interesting time would be walking in the gardens of uh, the Royal Gardens in Sydney, Australia. And uh, it just stuck with me. And for some reason, I do not know how I got to the point of writing this song, but I um, contrasted writing, uh, walking in those gardens and just kind of thinking about things uh, with a New York City and, uh, you know, the dark, cold, um, kind of unfriendly city. And so once I had that, I started to, to work on it, and that's pretty much where the idea came from. Now, the album was recorded in Nashville, and uh, you did it, if I understand, with your, your touring band, so that, that's got to give you a little real uh, level of comfort and knowledge with guys that you take on the road. Oh, well... These guys have been with me from 10 to 30 years. Um, I've made a lot of albums with Tony Migliori playing the piano or writing the strings or uh, playing electric piano. And, uh, you know, these are long-time relationships that I have with, uh, with these guys. And uh, I know their families, and uh, we're, we're, we're almost, like, almost like a family, really. Uh, we've had a lot of adventures, that's for sure. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, they are the best. And uh, my drummer, Jerry Kroon, um, said, why don't you bring us in the studio and let's, you know, play some of these songs. And uh, so I did some tracks, but uh, then I had them in, and that was a very good idea <clears throat> because uh, uh, we got songs like Ain't She a Honey and Grief and Hope and King of Fools and these kind of things, and it turned out very well. It sure did. It's such a terrific album, and it, it showcases a lot of different sides of you. Uh, there's certainly some beautiful ballads. I love Till Tomorrow, uh, but some great up-tempo, upbeat songs. Total Eclipse of the Sun is a wonderful song. Uh, the title cut, Botanical Gardens. Ain't She a Honey is a throwback to, a, uh, in, in many ways, musically, a, another time and place. But it's a fun album, and uh, I would say it's a very romantic album, too. Well, I've always been uh, a romantic songwriter. Uh, even a song like Vincent, even a song like American Pie is, 
has got a romantic aspect to it. Um, it's always something I've done. Um, why, I don't know, but I don't write hateful songs or songs that get back at somebody or uh, things like this. Um, and I don't really know why that is, but uh, I love beautiful melodies. And each song I write is different, so I don't really write the same song over and over, although that's a very uh, good talent to have. So I would say that uh, I think that feelings uh, are at the bottom of what I do, emotion, uh, love, loss, um, anxiety, you know, whatever. Um, exuberance, they're all, you know, part of what I try to build into to a song. Is that something, especially that romance, and, and frankly, thought and sentiment and emotion and uh, memory seems to be left out of a lot of contemporary music? Yes, I think we're a bit of a Prozac nation now. <laughs> uh, we don't really want to feel much. Uh, in fact, Jack Nicholson said something in an interview, which I have been uh, talking about. He said, I, I don't think that audiences in the United States anyway want to be moved anymore. And I think that he's such a brilliant guy. And he, he says a lot of very interesting things in his interviews, and that was one of them. And I think I have to agree with that. I think, I think people just want to be pounded you know, with uh, a lot of noise and a lot of uh, wall of sound. They want to dance. And, uh, you know, they want to kind of forget. I think there's a, a lot of, um, of uh, you know, beating until unconscious type of, uh, of effort behind a lot of entertainment and trying to forget what's going on. I think I think in some ways maybe the world is too much for people uh, in some ways. We certainly don't have a childhood anymore because if you have a computer screen in the stomach of a teddy bear, I mean, that's, that's <laughs> you know, not really a childhood. You're already on the fast track. It is interesting how the, the music often reflects the times. And uh, as you were talking about that, I, I thought of uh, the disco movement of the mid and late 70s that in some ways uh, was a reaction to things that were going on in the country with doubt, with economic troubles. And um, sometimes the music that becomes popular is an escape from that and, and doesn't require listeners to think. But I, I feel like I feel like you've always aimed a little higher than that. Well, really, um, all of the music in the 1960s and 70s, until the mid-70s when the disco thing really hit, was, you know, pretty interesting. You know, there were ideas and melodies and thoughts and, you know, songs written about things that were going on. Um, you know, there was a certain level of social consciousness that was built in because the audience was young and they were... Uh, concerned about the world they were inheriting. Um, and now I just don't think that there's, there is that anymore. And I think there's a form of dance music has really taken over since 
since disco because rap music is dance music really and uh so it's all a form of sort of uh party time you know and uh, i'm for partying you know i think that's a great thing to do and a lot of these shows that they put on uh are just party time for kids and they dig it you know they have a great time with 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 everybody getting into it uh but they've lost Two things they've lost the ability to write melodies and they've lost the ability to talk about things in the world in an intellectual way or even a quasi-intellectual way i was watching the country music television station just for fun you know to see what these videos were like and Every song was built on one note. Everyone. There wasn't really a chord change there. It's... And I switched to Jules Holland, you know, on MTV. Yeah, I watched yeah. a lot of more contemporary people, and every song was built again on one note. Um, so that's, that's a worry. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> It's interesting you mentioned that about country music. I was actually uh, working in country radio in the 80s when uh, you had a number of hits that crossed over to the country charts, including, I think, the best cover anybody's ever done of Roy Orbison's Crying. But that was also a time, though, when country music, I, I felt, was was more literate, more accepting of outside influences. And now it's sort of the, uh, well, I guess for lack of a better term, the redneckization of country music that's happened in the last few years. You've got some, back in those days, in the late, uh, early 80s, mid-80s, you had some really good songwriters uh, who were coming up with some damn good songs. And uh, the crying thing was another, you know, freak uh, accident, which I've had a lot of in my life, um, because that, I went to Nashville and recorded with um, the great, uh, late, great, uh, Larry Butler, who made a lot of his mm. records. And um, so I did an album called Chain Lightning. And uh, I said, I want to sing Crying. And as usual, I got this, what do you want to do that for? Uh, <laughs> I said, well, I just want to. I, I just had to. And um, so I said, but I'm going to slow it down. And I'm going to do it like this. And uh, so he loved that. And uh, basically, all of the guys that were on that record were really Elvis's old backup band. The Jordanaires, mm. Bob Moore, uh, Pete Drake, um, and, you know, the guitarists were Jimmy Capps, Ray Edinson. You know, these guys are legends. And they just turn out hits all day long, you know. So we... Uh, we cut that and it really, it really, uh, it made it and it put strings on it and uh, it went through the roof. We're talking with Don McLean here on Downtown. His new album is entitled Botanical Gardens. And one of the songs on there uh, uh, hits close to home for us here in Maine because it's the true story of a gentleman. If I remember it right, is it uh, from Damrascata, the story of the waving man? No, he's actually from Camden, Maine. Oh, okay. Uh, and he was right on the road uh, that went uh, route. Uh, Route one, 
Okay. Yeah, I think uh, it is. Yes. That's 105. That's 105. It goes into campus. Yeah, from where I lived, and he was—he would stay there and wave me out and wave me in, and he did that probably for about three years. And as I was working on this album, um, I said, "Well, I just have to write a song about the waving man," you know. And so I kind of invented his life, and I sang it around a little bit, and every people would come up to me and they say, "Oh, we have a waving man in our town," and. Uh, <laughs> So they're all over the place. I want to talk a little bit about I mean, your start in the music business. And uh, did I hear the story correct a while back that uh, seeing the Weavers in a reunion concert was a real inspiration for you to pursue a life in music? Is that right? Yes. I had uh, been working very hard at my singing and guitar playing and banjo picking um, from the time I was 15 until I was like 18. And I went, instead of going to the senior prom, um, I took a young lady to the Weavers reunion at Carnegie Hall. And that was, I think, May, in May sometime of 1963. And uh, once I saw that, I decided I wanted to do that for, for my, with my life. And, um, but I took with me everything. One of the problems with the folk, uh, the folk song revival, as it was called, was that it became very judgmental about all other kinds of music. Um, now I got to know a lot of the, of the members of that group and they were not like that they were very open-minded to good music they loved rock and roll they liked nat king cole they liked you know good music but a lot of the people that came along you know became very discriminating is a good word for it and you know this song wasn't good enough to be a folk song and this song isn't a folk song and all all this stuff and um I got really sick of that, you know, and it was basically a cover for being a lousy musician. You know, if anything had more than three chords, their nose would go up, you know. <laughs> and I was looking to expand and write songs that were complicated and interesting and musical. And uh, so I just couldn't stand the environment after a while, you know, um, and I kind of had to create my own my own world well you certainly did that and when you mentioned the, the words interesting and musical and and perhaps complicated as well uh, american pie certainly fits that uh, five million plays you were honored uh, from bmi for that accomplishment earlier this year it's uh, such an epic song and I, I i guess in the history of pop and rock music Maybe American Pie, perhaps You're So Vain by Carly Simon have to be maybe the two most analyzed songs in history. Um, did you did you intend for that to be a, a bit of a puzzle, a bit of a mystery well, for listeners? American Pie was making fun of songs like You're So Vain. <laughs> That's the thing people don't realize. I was making fun of that Paul is Dead stuff and, you know, uh, I, I had a lot of fun with that song. I was doing a lot of different things at once. It's almost very difficult to talk about, and I have done a lot of talking about it in the last 45 years, but it's 
I've no, I don't think I ever, ever expressed how much fun it was, you know, just to, to toy with. And uh, once I got the melody and the idea for the way it was going to be structured, um, and I think that's partly why when the lyrics sold a couple of years ago, people were interested in a lot of the of the lyrics I didn't use and ideas I had that I didn't put in the song, you know, and uh, things like that. Well, I, but, I have, uh, I've been a fan of your music for a, a long, long time from American Pie. Obviously uh, I, I always think castles in the air was my inspiration to get out of a, a bad relationship along the way. And uh, in recent years, as an older dad, I spent many a night singing my son to sleep with wonderful baby. Well, that's nice to hear. Thank you. I also uh, love a, a song of yours that uh, I don't believe was released as a single, but I, I thought it was ter- a terrific piece of writing, a wonderful story song, Superman's Ghost. Yeah, it's the story of George Reeves, uh, and I wrote that before this Hollywoodland movie ever got made. Right. I was always interested in it. I'm a, a repository of useless information about all sorts of things. It's one of my hobbies, I suppose, which is why I love my phone, because I can Google anything, and I spend a lot of time Googling little details of, you know, and looking for things. Uh, totally got me hooked. But, uh, yes, this is about, I guess, about 1983 or four. I wrote this song, and uh, it was about the sort of the the interesting pop story of the death of George Reeves and um, the whole Superman phenomenon on television. And it was a phenomenon. I remember when it first appeared, uh, the kids in the the grammar school that I went to were energized about this show. And, uh, and I read something that was uh, kind of interesting that George would turn up sometimes with the, Superman outfit, but one day some kid brought his father's pistol and wanted to see if those bullets were going to bounce off him mm. and uh, freaked him out. And he said, I ain't never wearing that thing again. So he, he always wore a suit whenever he, you know, he made any kind of personal appearance. But and also and, uh, the, the whole involvement with his, you know, his women and everything and Eddie Manick. You know, that whole story, who right. um, was a fixer for M- MGM, um, is, is quite a, a, a film noir type of a story, you know, type of thing that uh, James Elway would write about. Yeah, but also a nice uh, allegory as well for any artist who uh, gets, well, as George Reeves did, stuck in a Superman role, uh, having to, to play the songs that, that people remember from many years ago and not always wanting to hear new material and, and picturing artists as they were. I always think of Rick Nelson's garden party as an example too. Uh, it's a, it's a balancing act to please the fans, but also play the music that satisfies you. Well, that, you know, that is always going to happen. I mean, if you're lucky enough to have songs that have mass appeal, um, you know, even a great group like the Rolling Stones have to do Satisfaction. You know, that song stands far and above everything they ever did. And you have to do it. <laughs> and and uh, now you take someone like Frank Sinatra. Now, there was a guy, and 
Sinatra and Bing Crosby, uh, people like that, had reams of hit records. I mean, because they were the, they always sang the song the best, and they got the first shot or always did the best job on whatever the the new song was from one of the great songwriters, whether it was Carolyn Lee or you know uh, Jimmy Van Heusen or, or Irving Berlin or whatever, you know, and they always had the best arrangers and the best everything. And so they had Sinatra had pages of top 10 records with Tommy Dorsey before he ever uh, embarked on his own career. Um, so, you know, there are these type of superhuman uh, phenomenal artists, but when you get into the world of the 1950s and sixties, when music became, goes down to a street level when everything was, you know, Elvis and head arrangements, you know, in the studio, even though he had Chet Atkins around, you know, he had his boys and he had his Jordanaires and they make this stuff up. And it's the same with, with the Beatles and the same with me. I mean, I had to make all this up, you know, write it all, record it, knew how it had to sound. Um, okay. Or, or, or say not good to, of certain kinds of instrumentation, which would put you, you know, in trouble with a producer sometimes who had other ideas. You can't let uh, other people, it's really tough because you can't stifle other people at work with you and you can't let them walk all over you either. So it's, uh, you really don't want to stifle great talent. I have learned to let people you know, do their thing and then in a nice way say, well, I'd like to do it a little bit like this, you know, and get around that because you want people to use their ability. But this is why I was lucky the Beatles had a George Martin, you know, who mm. was there to take up all the slack and fill in all the gaps, you know. Um, so that was a wonderful, a wonderful thing. Don, you're in great voice on the new album. And I, I have to think, too, as a songwriter, uh, there's got to be a wonderful feeling to be, I, I have to think, the only writer who's had his songs covered by both Perry Como and Drake. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I, uh, I definitely have some street creds. There's no <laughs> doubt about it. And uh, I'm very fortunate mentioned Wonderful Baby. I mean, the Fred Astaire version of Wonderful Baby is one of my favorite uh, uh, recordings of one of my songs. Um, so I've been able to have a wonderful um, sideline, really, of listening to great musical stars do, do my songs and appreciating you know, how they, you know, what, what things they did differently from what I did, you know, and uh, getting some insights into ways of of singing, even, that I might not have had. That's Don McLean, Botanical Gardens, the new album from him. He's still out there on a world tour right now. In support of that, we had a blast talking with him here on Downtown, the podcast. Thank you for joining us, as always. Please spread the word. Tell your friends. Get them to subscribe. Sign up as well, and we'll be back with another edition next week. Downtown, the podcast brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine.